the inner path, followed by the mystic, experience of the cycle of the year. To obviate any possible misunderstanding, I want to emphasize that the aim of yesterday's lecture was not that of proving anything in particular, but merely to point out that certain observations led spiritual investigators of bygone times to designate by similar names certain processes and objects in space and certain processes and happenings in our own daily and nightly experiences. The main purpose of the lecture was to introduce concepts that will be required in our further studies. The lectures given in this course must be regarded as a whole, and the early lectures are, in the widest sense, intended to assemble the ideas and conceptions needed for the, communi- for the knowledge of the spiritual worlds that is to be communicated in those that come later. Today, too, we shall take our start from familiar experiences and pass on gradually to more remote realms of spirit. We have heard in previous lectures that in respect of his inner being, in respect, that is to say, of his astral body and ego, man lives during the sleeping state in a spiritual world and on waking returns into his physical and etheric bodies. It will be evident to anyone who observes life that when this transition from the sleeping to the waking state takes place, there is a complete change of experience. What we experience in the waking state denotes no actual perception or knowledge of the two members of our being into which we descend on waking. We come down into our etheric and physical bodies but have no experience of them from within. What does a man know in ordinary life about the aspects presented by his physical and etheric bodies when seen from within? The essential fact of experience in the waking state is that we view our own being in the physical world from without, not from within. We view our physical body from outside with the same eyes with which we look at the rest of the world. During waking life we never contemplate our own being from within, but always from without. We really learn to know ourselves as men only from outside, regarding ourselves as beings of the sense world. There is, of course, an actual state of transition from sleeping to waking life. How, then, would it be if we were able, on descending into our etheric and physical bodies, to contemplate ourselves from within? We should see something quite different from what we see in the ordinary way. We should know the intimate experiences sought by the mystic. The mystic endeavors to divert his attention entirely from the outer world, to shut out the impressions invading his eyes and other senses, and to penetrate into his inmost being. But leaving aside experiences of this kind, we can say that in daily life we are protected from the sight of our inner being, for at the moment of waking our gaze is diverted to the external world around us, to the tapestry presented by the senses, the tapestry of which our physical body, when observed during waking life, is a part. Thus in the waking state, 
the possibility of observing ourselves from within eludes us. It is as though we had been led unknowingly across a stream. While we sleep, we are on this side of the stream, when we awake on yonder side. If we were capable of perceiving anything from this side, in quotes, we should be able to perceive our ego and our astral body as we perceive outer objects in waking life. But again, we are protected from perceiving our own inner being in sleep. For at the moment of going to sleep, the possibility of perceiving ceases and consciousness is extinguished. Thus between our inner and our outer world, a definite boundary is drawn, a boundary which we can cross only at the moments of going to sleep and waking. But we can never cross this boundary without being deprived of something. When we cross the boundary on going to sleep, consciousness ceases and we cannot see the spiritual world. On waking, our consciousness is at once diverted to the outer world and we are unable to perceive the spiritual reality underlying our own being. The boundary that we cross, the boundary that causes the spiritual world to be darkened at the moment of waking, is something that interpolates itself between our sentient soul and our etheric and physical bodies. The veil that covers these two members on waking, the veil that prevents us from beholding the spiritual reality underlying them is the sentient body, which enables us to see the tapestry presented by the outer world. At the moment of waking, the sentient body is wholly concerned with the outer world of the senses, and we cannot look within our own being. This body, therefore, constitutes a frontier between our life of inner experience and what spiritually underlies the world of the senses. We shall realize that this is necessary. For what a man would see if he were to cross this stream consciously is something that must be hidden from him in the course of his normal life, because he could not endure it. He needs to be prepared for the experience. Mystical development does not really consist in penetrating, by force, into the inner world of the physical and etheric bodies, but in first making oneself fit for the experience and passing through it consciously. What would happen to a man who were to descend unprepared into his own inner being? On waking, instead of seeing an external world, he would enter into his own inner world, into that which spiritually underlies his physical and etheric bodies. In his soul, he would experience a feeling of tremendous intensity, known to him in ordinary life in a very faint and weakened form only. That is what would come over a man if he were able on waking from sleep to descend into his own inner being. An analogy, without attempting to prove anything, will help you to have an idea of this feeling. There is in man what is called the sense of shame, the essence of which is that in his soul he wants to divert the attention of others from the thing or quality of which he is ashamed. 
This sense of shame in connection with something he does not want to be revealed is a faint indication of the feeling which would be intensified to overpowering strength if he were to look consciously into his own inner being. This feeling would take possession of the soul with such power that it would seem to be diffused over everything encountered in the external world. The man would undergo an experience comparable with that of being consumed by fire. Such would be the effect produced by this feeling of shame. Why should it have this effect? Because, at that moment, a man would become aware of the perfection of his physical and etheric bodies compared with what he is as a being of soul. It is also possible to form an idea of this by ordinary reasoning. Anyone who, with the help of physical science, makes a purely external study of the marvelous structure of the human heart or brain or of each single part of the human skeleton, will be able to feel how infinitely wise and perfect is the arrangement and organization of the physical body. By taking one single bone, for example the hip bone, which combines the utmost carrying capacity with the least expenditure of effort, or by contemplating the marvelous structure of the heart or brain, it is possible to have an inkling of what would be experienced if one were to behold the wisdom by which this structure was produced and were then to compare with this what man is as a being of soul in respect of passions or desires. All through his life he is engaged in ruining this wonderful physical organism by yielding to his desires, urges, passions and various forms of enjoyment. Activity destructive to the wonderful structure of the physical heart or brain can be observed everywhere in life. All this would come vividly before a man's soul if he were to descend consciously into his etheric and physical bodies. And the soul's imperfection compared with the perfect structure of the sheaths would have an overwhelmingly paralyzing effect upon him if he were able to compare what is in his soul with what the wise guidance of the universe has made of his physical and etheric bodies. He is therefore protected from descending into them consciously and is deflected on waking by the tapestry of the sense world outspread around him. He cannot look into his inmost being. It is the comparison of the soul with what it would perceive if it had sight of what spiritually underlies the physical and etheric bodies that would evoke the intense feeling of shame. Preparation for this is made in advance through all the experiences undergone by the mystic before he becomes capable of penetrating into his inmost being. To realize for himself the imperfection of his soul, to realize that his soul is weak, insignificant, and has still an infinitely long path to travel, is bound to arouse a feeling of humility and a yearning for perfection and these qualities prepare him to endure the comparison with the infinitely wise structure into which he penetrates on waking. Otherwise he would be consumed by shame as if by fire, 
The mystic prepares himself by concentrating on the following thoughts. Quote, when I behold what I am and compare it with what the wise guidance of the universe has made of me, the shame I feel is like a consuming fire. Close quote. This feeling gives rise outwardly to the flush of shame. This feeling would intensify to such an extent as to become a scorching fire in the soul if the mystic has not the strength to say to himself, quote, Yes, I feel utterly paltry in comparison with what I may become, but I shall try to develop the strength that will make me capable of understanding what the wisdom of the universe has built into my bodily nature and to make myself spiritually worthy of it. The mystic is made to realize by his spiritual teacher that he must have boundless humility. It may be said to him, look at a plant. A plant is rooted in the soil. The soil makes available to the plant a kingdom lower than itself, but without which it cannot exist. The plant can bow to the mineral kingdom, saying, I owe my existence to this lower kingdom, out of which I have grown. The animal, too, owes its existence to the plant kingdom, and if it were conscious of its place in the world, would in humility acknowledge its indebtedness to the lower kingdom. And man, having reached a certain height, should say, I could not have attained this stage had not everything below me evolved accordingly. When a man cultivates such feelings in his soul, the realization comes to him that he has reason not only to look upward, but to look downward with thankfulness to the kingdoms below him. The soul is then filled with this feeling of humility and realizes how infinitely long is the path that leads toward perfection. Such is the training for true humility. What has been described above cannot, of course, be exhausted by concepts and ideas. If that were the case, the mystic would soon have mastered it. It must be experienced. And only one who experiences such feelings over and over again can imbue his soul with the attitude and mood necessary for the mystic. Then, secondly, the would-be mystic must develop another feeling which makes him capable of enduring whatever obstacles may lie in his path as he strives toward perfection. He must develop a feeling of resignation in respect of whatever ordeals he will have to endure in order to reach a certain stage of development. Only by proving himself victorious over pain and suffering for a long, long time can he develop the strong powers needed by his soul to overcome the inevitable sense of inferiority in face of what the wise world order has incorporated in the etheric and physical bodies. The soul must say to itself over and over again, quote, Whatever pain and suffering still await me, I will not waver. For if I were willing to experience only what brings joy, I should never develop a strength, the strength of which my soul is actually capable. Close quote. Strength is developed only by overcoming obstacles, not by simply submitting to conditions as they are. Forces of soul can be steeled only when a man is 
ready to bear pain and suffering with resignation. This strength must be developed in the soul of the mystic if he is to become fit to descend into his inner being. Let nobody imagine that spiritual science demands that a man living an ordinary everyday life shall undergo such exercises, for they are beyond his power. What is being described here is simply a narration of what those who voluntarily embark upon such experiences can make of the soul, that is to say, they can make the soul capable of penetrating into their own inmost being. In the course of normal life, however, the sentient body intervenes between what is between what it is possible for the mystic to experience inwardly and what is actually experienced in the external world. That is what protects a man from descending into his own inner self without preparation and being consumed by a feeling of shame. In the normal course of life, a man cannot experience what is thus screened from him by the sentient body, for there he has already reached the frontier of the spiritual world. A spiritual investigator seeking to explore the inner nature of man must cross this frontier. He must cross the stream which diverts normal human consciousness from the inner to the outer world. This normal consciousness, while insufficiently mature, is protected from penetrating into man's inner self, protected from being consumed in the fire of shame. Man cannot see the power which protects him from this experience every morning on waking. This power is the first spiritual being encountered by one who is about to pass into the spiritual world. He must pass this being who protects him from being consumed by the inner sense of shame. He must pass this being who deflects his inward turn gaze to the external world, to the tapestry of sense phenomena. Normal consciousness becomes aware of the effect of this being, but man cannot see him. He is the first being who must be passed by one who desires to penetrate into the spiritual world. This spiritual being, who every morning stands before man and protects him while he is still immature from sight of his own inner self, is called in spiritual science the lesser guardian of the threshold. The path into the spiritual world leads past this being. Our consciousness has thus been directed to the frontier where we can dimly divine the existence of the being known to the spiritual investigator as the lesser guardian of the threshold. Here already is an indication that in waking life we do not see our true being at all. And if we call our own being the microcosm, we must add that we never see the microcosm in its pure spiritual form, but only the part that our own being reveals in the normal state. Just as when a man looks in a mirror, he sees an image, a picture, and not himself, 
So in waking consciousness, we do not see the microcosm itself, but a reflected image of it. We see the microcosm in its mirror image. Do we ever see the macrocosm in its reality? Again, we can take our start from familiar experiences, leaving aside, for the moment, what a man undergoes in the course of the 24 hours of the day. We will think of the very simplest experiences that come to a man in the outer world of the senses. In that world, he perceives an alternation between day and night, how the sun rises in the morning and sets in the evening. He perceives how the sunlight illumines all the objects around him. What is it, then, that man sees from sunrise until sunset? Fundamentally speaking, he does not see the objects themselves at all, but the sunlight which they reflect. In the dark, we cannot see an object without illumination. Let us take the eye as representative of the other senses. What we see during the day are, in reality, the reflected rays of the sun. This is how things are from morning until evening. But man has only a very imperfect perception of the cause which enables him to see objects in the outer world at all. If we look at the sun directly, our eyes are dazzled. The very cause to which we owe the faculty of perceiving the outer sense world dazzles us. Thus, during the day it is the same with the sun outside as it is on waking with our own inner self. The forces within ourselves enable us to live and to perceive the outer world, but our attention is diverted from our own inner being to the outer world. It is the same with the sun. It enables us to perceive objects, but dazzles us when we attempt to look at it. Nor during the day can we perceive everything that is connected with the sun. We see what the earth reveals to us in the reflected sunlight. Our solar system is composed not only of the sun, but also of the planets. By day the sight of them is denied us. The sun dazzles our vision not only of itself, but also of the planets. We look out into space, knowing that although the planets are there, they evade our observation. Just as by day we are prevented from seeing our own inner self, and by night the sight of the spiritual world is denied us in ordinary sleep, so by day, when our gaze is directed outward, the causes of our sense perceptions are hidden from us. What lies behind the sun and connects it with the other bodies belonging to the solar system, with the beings whose outer manifestations we call Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and so on, whatever living cooperation there is between the sun and these heavenly bodies is hidden from us by day. What we perceive is the effect of the sunlight. When we compare this state with the state in which the world around us exists by night, from sunset to dawn, we can perceive in a certain way what belongs to our solar system. We can look up to the starry heavens and, among other stars, behold the planets at times when they are visible.
But while we can see them in the night sky, the sun itself is invisible. We must therefore say what by day makes the sense world visible to us, by night takes from us the possibility of seeing it. At night the whole of the sense world is invisible. Is it possible to discover, in connection with the nocturnal state, something analogous to the state of the mystic when he descends into his own inner world? In the modern age, there is little consciousness of this analogous state, but there is something of the kind. It consists in the fact that, like the mystic, a man develops certain qualities of humility and resignation and other feelings too, the nature of which we can grasp by picturing the simplest of them. Man has these feelings in normal life, in a weak form like the sense of shame, but nevertheless he has them. By enormously enhancing these feelings, he prepares himself to have experiences by night which differ entirely from those of normal consciousness. We all know that our feelings in spring are different from those we have in the autumn. When buds are bursting in spring and giving promise of the beauty and splendor of summer, the feelings of a healthy soul will not be the same as they are in autumn. With the approach of spring, we feel the awakening of hope. The feeling is only slightly developed in an ordinary normal man, but it is present nevertheless. Toward autumn, the mood of hope and awakening, connected with spring, will be transformed into one of sadness, of melancholy. When we see the leaves falling, when we see bare, skeleton-like branches, instead of the bright flowering shrubs of summer, our souls are steeped in melancholy. There is sadness in our hearts. In the course of the year, if we move in step with the phenomena of outer nature, we can experience a cycle in our life of soul. But as these feelings are faint and feeble in normal life, man's sensibility to the transformations that take place from spring to summer and autumn and from autumn to winter is only slight. Once upon a time, and it is still so today, a pupil of spiritual knowledge, who was to take the opposite path to that of the mystic, was trained in such feelings. In contrast to the mystic's descent into his own inner being, he was taught to live with the cycle of outer nature. He learned to feel with great intensity no longer faintly as in ordinary life, the awakening of nature and the sprouting of vegetation in spring. Then, when he was able to surrender himself wholly to this experience, the feeling of dawning hope in spring became one of joyful exultation in summer. He was trained to have this experience of exultation. And again, when a man was so far advanced as to experience in himself Excuse me, and to experience incomplete self-forgetfulness, the melancholy of autumn, he could pass on to experience a feeling of winter, intensified into a feeling of the death of all nature at midwinter. Such were the feelings awakened in the pupils who had undergone training in the old northern mysteries, of which only the external side is still known, 
and that merely as tradition. The pupils were trained by special methods to accompany in their own life of feeling the cycle of nature throughout the year. All the experiences which came to these pupils, for example on Midsummer Night, were indications of the crescendo of hope to exultation shared with nature. The festival of Midsummer Night was intended to portray the enhancement of the feeling of awakening in spring to that of joyous exultation in the superabundant life of summer. And at the winter solstice the pupil learned to experience as an infinitely enhanced feeling of autumn the decline and death of nature. Such feelings can hardly be felt with equal strength by a man today. As a result of the progress of his intellectual life during recent centuries, present-day man has become incapable of undergoing the intense, overpowering experiences which the best representatives of the original peoples of Middle, Northern, and Western Europe were able to endure. Having undergone such training, the pupils who had thus intensified their inner experiences found themselves possessed of a particular faculty, however strange this may sound, the faculty of seeing through matter, just as the mystic is able to penetrate into his own inner self. They were able to see not merely surfaces of objects, but they were able to see through the objects and, above all, through the earth. This experience was called, in the ancient mysteries, seeing the sun at midnight. The sun could be seen in its greatest splendor and glory, only at the time of the winter solstice, when the whole external sense world had, so to speak, died away. The pupils of the mysteries had developed the faculty of seeing the sun no longer as the dazzling power it is by day, but with all its dazzling brilliance eliminated. They saw the sun not as a physical, but as a spiritual reality, and they beheld the sun spirit. The physical effect of dazzling was extinguished by the earth's substance, for this had become transparent and allowed only the sun's spiritual forces to pass through. But something else of great significance was connected with this beholding of the sun, the fact of which only an abstract indication was given yesterday was then revealed in all its truth, namely that there is a living interplay between the planets and the sun inasmuch as streams flow continually to and fro, from the planets to the sun and from the sun to the planets. Something was revealed spiritually that may be compared with the circulation of the blood in the human body. As the blood flows in living circulation from the heart to the organs and from the organs back again to the heart, so did the sun reveal itself as the center of living spiritual streams flowing to and fro between the sun and the planets. The solar system revealed itself as a spiritual system of living realities, the external manifestation of which is no more than a symbol. Everything manifested by the individual planets pointed to the great spiritual experience just described, as a clock points to the time of occurrences in external life. All that man learns to experience by enhancing his sensibility withdraws 
as the spiritual aspect of space from the ordinary sight of day. It is also concealed by the spectacle presented at night. For what does man see at night with his ordinary faculties when he looks up to the heavens? He sees only the external side, just as he sees only the external side of his own inner being. The starry sky we behold is the body of spiritual reality lying behind it. Wonderful as is the spectacle of the starry sky at night, it is nothing but the physical body of the cosmic spirit. Manifesting through this body in its movements and in its outward effects. Once again, for ordinary human consciousness, a veil is drawn over everything that man would behold were he able spiritually to see through the spectacle presented to him in space. Just as we are protected in ordinary life from beholding our own inner being, we are also protected from beholding the spirit underlying the outer material world. The veil of the sense world is spread over the underlying spiritual reality. Why should this be so? If a man were to have direct vision of the spiritual macrocosm without the preparation that has been described, it is the opposite process to that undergone by the mystic, a feeling of the most terrifying bewilderment would come over him, for the phenomena are so mighty and awe-inspiring, that the concepts evolved in ordinary life would be quite incapable of enabling him to endure this utterly bewildering spectacle. He would be overcome by a tremendous enhancement of the fear he otherwise knows only in a weak form. Just as a man would be consumed by shame if, without preparation, he were to penetrate into his own inner being, he would be suffocated by fear if while still unprepared he were to confront the phenomena of the outer world. He would feel as though he were being led into a labyrinth. Only when the soul has prepared itself through ideas and thoughts which lead beyond the realm of ordinary experience can it prepare itself to endure the bewildering spectacle. Man's intellectual life today makes it impossible for him to undergo what could at one time be undergone by individuals belonging to an original population of northern and western Europe through an intensification of the feeling of spring and autumn. Intellectually, excuse me, intellectuality was by no means as general in those times as it is today. Men's thinking is utterly different from what it was in those olden days when it was far less developed. But with the gradual evolution of intellectuality, the capacity for this experience of nature was lost. It is, however, possible for man to have it indirectly, as if in reflection, when these feelings can be kindled, not by actual experience of the happenings in external nature, but by accounts and descriptions of the spiritual aspects of the macrocosm. At the present time, therefore, it is necessary for descriptions to be provided, such as those contained, for example, in the book Occult Science and Outline, which has just been published. I say this without boasting, simply because circumstances make it necessary. 
Such descriptions are of realities which cannot be outwardly perceived, which underlie the world spiritually, and can be seen by one who has undergone the requisite preparation. Let us suppose that such a book is not read in the way that books of another kind are read today, but that it is read, as it should be, in such a way that the concepts and ideas it presents in an unpretentious form induce in the reader feelings which are experienced in the very greatest intensity. Such experiences are then similar to those that were induced in the old northern mysteries. The book gives, for example, an account of the earlier embodiments of the earth, and if read with inner participation, a difference of style will be recognized in the descriptions of the old Saturn, old Sun, and old Moon conditions. By letting what is there said about old Saturn work upon us, we shall induce a feeling consonant with the mood of spring. And in the description of the old Sun evolution, there is something analogous to the emotion of exaltation once experienced on Midsummer Night. The description of the old moon evolution may evoke the mood of autumn, and the whole style of the description of earth evolution proper will induce a mood prevailing, excuse me, a mood similar to that prevailing when the time of the winter solstice is approaching. At the right place in the description of earth evolution, an indication is given of the central experience connected with the mood of Christmas. This knowledge can be given today in the place of experiences which man is no longer capable of undergoing because he has now risen from an earlier life in feeling to intellectuality, to thinking. Hence it is through the mirror of thinking that feelings originally kindled by nature herself must be influenced. This is how writings should be composed if they are to convey what it is the aim of spiritual science to convey and the moods they generate must be consonant with the course of the year. Theoretical descriptions are quite senseless, for they simply lead to spiritual matters being regarded just as if they were recipes in a cookery book. The difference between books on spiritual science and other kinds of literature lies not so much in the fact that unusual things are described, but mainly in how things are presented. From this you will realize that the contents of spiritual science are drawn from deep sources, and that, in accordance with the mission of our time, feelings must be quickened through thoughts. You will realize then that it is also possible today to find something that can lead again out of the prevailing confusion. Now when, guided by such principles, a man sets out along the path leading into the labyrinth of happenings in the spiritual macrocosm. This is something that was prophetically foreshadowed among the original peoples of northern Europe. The faculties enabling them to read the great script of nature were still active in these peoples at a time when the Greeks had already reached a high stage of intellectuality. It was the mission of the Greeks to prepare what we today must bring to an even more advanced degree of development. A book such as, titled Occult Science, could not have been written in the days of ancient Greece, but Greek culture made it possible, in a different way, for one who ventured into the labyrinth of the spiritual cosmos 
to find a thread that would guide him back again. This is indicated in the legend of Theseus, who took the thread of Ariadne with him into the labyrinth. Now, what is the thread of Ariadne today? The concepts and mental pictures of the supersensible world we form in the soul. It is the spiritual knowledge that is made available to us in order that we may penetrate safely into the macrocosm. And so, spiritual science, which to begin with speaks purely to the intellect, can be a thread of Ariadne, helping us to overcome the bewilderment that might come if we were to enter unprepared into the spiritual world of the macrocosm. So we see that if a man wishes to find the spirit behind and pervading the outer world, we must traverse with full awareness a region of which in normal life he is unconscious. He must traverse consciously the very stream which in everyday life takes consciousness from him. If then he allows himself to be affected by feelings kindled by the cyclic course of nature herself or by concepts and ideas such as those referred to, if, in short, he achieves real self-development, he gradually becomes capable of fearlessly approaching that spiritual power who is at first invisible. Just as the inner guardian of the threshold is imperceptible to ordinary consciousness, so too is this second guardian, the greater guardian of the threshold, who stands before the spiritual macrocosm. He becomes more and more perceptible to one who has undergone due preparation and is making his way along the other path into the spiritual macrocosm. He must fearlessly and without falling into bewilderment pass this spiritual being who also shows us how insignificant we are and that we must develop new organs if we aspire to penetrate into the macrocosm. If a man were to approach this greater guardian of the threshold consciously but still unprepared, he would be filled with fear and despair. We have now heard how with his normal consciousness man is enclosed within the frontiers marked by two portals. At the one stands the lesser guardian of the threshold, at the other the greater guardian of the threshold. The one portal leads into man's inner being, into the spirit of the microcosm. The other portal leads into the spirit of the macrocosm. But now we must realize that from this same macrocosm come the spiritual forces which build up our own being. Whence comes the material for our physical and etheric bodies? All the forces which there converge and are so full of wisdom are arrayed before us in the great world when we have passed the greater guardian of the threshold. We are confronted there not by knowledge only. And that is another point of importance. Until now I have been speaking only of knowledge that can be acquired by man, but it does not yet become insight into the actual workings and forces of the macrocosm. The body cannot be built out of data of knowledge. It must be built out of forces. Once past the mysterious being who is the greater guardian of the threshold, they come into a world of unknown workings and forces. To begin with, man knows nothing of this realm because the veil of the sense world spreads in front. But these forces stream into us 
have built up our physical and etheric bodies. This whole interplay, the interactions between the great world and the little world, between what is within and what is without, concealed by the veil of the sense world, all this is embraced within the bewildering labyrinth. It is life itself, in full reality, into which we enter and have then to describe. Tomorrow we shall begin by taking a first glimpse into that which man cannot, it is true, perceive in its essence, but which is revealed to him as active workings when he passes through the one or the other portal, when he passes the lesser and the greater guardians of the threshold. <laughs>